Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, listeners. So pleased to introduce the part two of the rebroadcasted shows from Dr. Phil Maffetone, his first appearances on the Primal Endurance Podcast uh, a few years ago now. So I hope you enjoyed part one. I tried to add some value with an impassioned introduction about the importance of his message and reminiscing how it was difficult for close-minded, narrowly focused endurance athletes to receive that message back in the mid to late 90s when he first arrived on the scene from doing great work with the leading triathletes in the world. Uh, So now in this show, uh, we get into it with a little different direction than the first show where he was hitting those uh, boilerplate topics. Uh, Now we're talking about uh, my personal crash and burn patterns and his insights on that that hopefully you can uh, relate to and get some benefit from. The importance of rest and recovery and how that might be more important than training. And that goes into the interesting theme that comes out of Phil's book uh, titled 159. And it's about the quest for the magical two-hour marathon world record mark. Right now, the marathon world record has been lowered to uh, just under two hours and three minutes. The Nike project, the highly touted project called 159, I believe, where they were training these athletes and orchestrating a perfectly uh, suited record attempt running around an automobile racetrack with perfect conditions and pacers. uh, And the guy just uh, was missing it again, doing a 202, 203 time. So someday we're going to see a 159 marathon. And the most provocative notion that Phil has on the topic is that the record will be broken in the future by an athlete who is doing less mileage and less intensity than today's leading elite marathon runners. Wow, how does that make sense? Because we're probably still seeing these overtraining patterns where we're falling short of peak human potential in the very best athletes in the world because they're training too hard, racing too often, and also as Phil comes up with these interesting notions that uh, barefoot will one day be faster than even the hippest, coolest running shoes from Nike. The foot works better and is a more effective propulsive force than any shoe that encases it. Pretty wild, huh? So enjoy show number two, going off into some thoughtful topics and also giving you some nice takeaways to improve your training. Part two of Dr. Phil Maffetone early shows on the Primal Endurance channel. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. You know, I go and I feel fantastic for however periods of time and I perform great athletic feats and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thumbs up on everything. And then I'll have, you know, down period that'll last for a week or a month and it just feels like I'm tired. And I want to take a nap every day. And, um, you know, if it's a chronic condition, like I'm deficient on this or that, it doesn't make sense that I turn around and feel great. The next month, but I'm I'm trying to get rid of the the down periods or you right. Know. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there could be there could be some some hidden things in there. You know, vitamin D acts that way sometimes. Um, hmm. um, I I have seen 
situations like that where the 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 heart rate that you've chosen is one or two beats high and you might consider being more conservative with that heart rate and building a bigger base and if you're going to play golf uh speed golf um that that will help you um certainly as well um but that you know that it it's the kind of thing that you might have to try something and see what happens well i think uh, uh could, i need you to try two yeah. or three things i think i need to lower that heart rate cuz i was giving myself uh i was going up like 142 which is 180 minus your age plus 12 um oh trying there's to, no such thing as plus 12 <laughs> yeah i mean how do you reconcile it with the 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 talk about um ventilatory threshold being the aerobic cutoff do you do you have any um comments on that or yeah you know in the in the in the scientific paper i tried to deal with that um the problem is that there's no consensus in science about all these different thresholds there are many many thresholds in science that they mm-hmm. talk about um uh you know, the, the anaerobic threshold and the VO2 max are these two popular ones, two common ones. But if you look in the in the medical library, you'll see articles uh, like the, the one by um, a couple of Japanese researchers that say it, the title of the of the paper is the anaerobic threshold does not exist. So <laughs> in you know, Japanese there. Yeah, well, it's actually written in English. But there's, <laughs> the problem is there's no consensus in terms of where these thresholds are. And most of the studies that show them are done on young college kids who are in great health. You know, they rule out the ones that have health problems. So you're, you're not looking at um, a study that's been done on the typical person or the typical athlete by any means. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I I I put the max aerobic heart rate somewhere on the low side of the aerobic threshold, which nobody ever talks about. But that's another scientific measurement that's mm-hmm. also quite undefined. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's below the lactate threshold, which varies considerably with your metabolism. Um, and I just don't. You know, there's it, it's almost an academic game when you start putting these things into place. Where does this fit in relation to that? Um, because there's no consensus in the scientific community about all of these things. So it, for me, it's fun to read about it and write about it. But um, when somebody wants to know where is that max aerobic heart rate in relation to my lactate level, but my, my lactate level is this. Well, it was that when you, you know, took some blood and hopefully didn't dilute it with sweat. Um, but what is it today and what is it going to be tomorrow? Um, so I, I just, you know, you use the 180 formula, be honest with it and be conservative with it. Hmm. I mean, you've already got, enough of an indicator that would rule out adding five. Okay. You know, okay. it's, it, it sound, you basically have a chemical injury and, and hypothetically you should subtract five. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the most disturbing thing was, you know, I'm faithfully 
uh, wearing that heart rate in the morning, jogging with the dogs and keeping it low. Okay, maybe not low enough. But then when I was playing golf and I, I didn't bother wearing my heart rate monitor and I just, I mm-hmm. just felt like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, take it easy and make sure it's aerobic. And then when I put the thing on, I think the stress of hitting the ball, you know, I mean, you stop and take a break to hit the ball, but then your brain is, you know, highly engaged in trying to hit a good shot. So it becomes a, a more stressful outing than just jogging and stopping a lot. You know, you're, you're trying yeah. to play golf. Yeah. And so my heart rate was way above. So maybe that's why I'm on the crash and burn cycle. It's just excessive. It's quite uh, possible, for yeah. sure. For sure. Ha- have you ever done a, a biathlon? Uh, the shooting, shooting no anything? but it's it's you know it's a very similar sport i mean it's exactly it's very the same. very similar yeah the the a lot of times the game is getting off your shot whether it's with a rifle or a golf club <laughs> um in a way that's not going to add stress to you that's you know that's something you have to work on and and if you have a heart monitor on it, it's a lot easier because you could and and if it has an audible Put that on, and you'll yeah. hear your heart rate increase. And when you when you hear that, you've got to you know just take a moment, just a moment, you know, get a, a breath in and relax, and you know, do your shot. Um, yeah. At least you know in the course of practice, because that that will retrain your central nervous system uh, and your autonomic nervous system, which is what you're trying to do. Um, so that when you and your your shot will be will be better too yeah what are you I mean, shooting uh well i played in the world championships i got 20th uh last october in bandon oregon and i mm-hmm. shot an 83 and it took me 51 minutes to complete the course and so that adds up to a total score for the tournament of 134 83 plus 51 and for example the winner shot 76 in 46 minutes so it's an interesting game because if you play better golf, you go faster because you're not chasing the ball in the sand trap or right. zigzagging. So it's yeah, a, the, it's a built-in advantage to yeah. be a good golfer. But the level of play is so high on on the pro field now that you're basically running all out. I mean, I'm I'm you know it's a 5.0 mile journey around a championship golf course, mm-hmm. and I'm running it at you know, as fast as I can go with my heart rate through the roof just to stay competitive and, and turn in a 51. Right. I mean, one guy did a 39, Rob Hogan, I had him on the podcast. And, you know, oh. to complete an entire golf course in 39 minutes and play the course, <laughs> not just not just run it, but actually play and, and, and shoot 80, boy. I mean, it's it's amazing what they're doing. Yeah, and, you know, part of it is is hitting the ball straight. You can hit it shorter. And as long as you're hitting it straight, you're going to be way ahead of the game at the end. Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, you know, another part of it is becoming a better golfer. Yeah. Uh, the the two guys I I was in touch with, like I mentioned to you, I can't remember their names. Hmm. Um, they were both really good golfers. Right. I forgot what they were shooting, but they were you know they were they were they were golfers, and they were okay runners. Um. So I think I think working on your game is going to help. But what? So what was tenth place? How many points? Um, I, I was uh, I was twentieth, and tenth was it was very very tight. I mean I was only twelve points out of the title, right? I was one twenty two was the winner, and I was one thirty four. So within twelve points, that's a stroke 
or a minute, um, there's 19 guys. So, you know, I missed a yeah. short putt on one of the holes because I was careless and it cost me the final money position. Um, so it's, yeah. you know, it's some serious It seems stuff. like you're, it seems like you're, 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 if, if we compare that, that world championship and hypothetically look at, you know, some simple factors, um, you're already in the top 10 if you, if you can correct them. I would, I would do a vitamin D test. Yeah, I got 55 last time, Phil. 55? Yeah, That's and I, I just did one last week. Oh, really? You like to see it higher? Not real good. Really? I like to see it up in the 60s or 70s. Wow. Uh, there, was this, there was also a study uh, last year, I think, or the year before, um, that showed a vitamin D level of 75 was best for preventing um, malignancies. So, you know, there, there's – if we look at human performance and vitamin D, um, I, I think – there's enough indications, and I've certainly seen it. I've been measuring vitamin D for years. Uh, back when they would laugh, the people in the lab would say, "Well, you know, why do you want to measure vitamin D? We, you know, people are out in the sun all the time. We we drink milk. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! And uh, you know, we come up with these ridiculously low numbers. Yeah. Um, I saw one the other day from someone in Spain. It was 18. And her, her doctor said, eh, you know, just spend a little more time in the sun. Well, at 18, you're not going to budge that without a, an injection of vitamin D to get you started because you're, that's a serious condition. Um, 55 is probably okay, but I, I'd still like to see it higher. Are you taking any vitamin D? Um, well, yeah, I, I make a better effort during the winter. But, you know, once I saw that value, that was last, last year. A year and a half ago now, you know, I kind of thought that was that was okay, but I'm I'm interested to hear you you like a higher level, so I'll I'll hit that hard. Yeah. And right now, the sun's you know we're finally getting the chance to make some, so I'll make an effort to get yeah. my get my skin under the sun too. Um, yeah, and then check it again. You know, this is another aging thing. We, we <laughs> our skin is is going to lose some efficiency to obtain that vitamin D. So every winter we, we lose a little bit more and we don't, because we don't gain as much and then making up for it is a little bit slower. Wow. Um, so maybe, maybe just one more time, check it to make sure you're still at least there or if not higher. Yeah. I just did earlier this week. I went and drew blood cause I was getting frustrated of, you know, dragging for a while. So I'll see what comes of that. That's interesting to point that one it's out. It's a good, yeah. It's a yeah. good. Um, it's a good screen to do. Um, it, you know, it usually doesn't show much, but it it could, and it's it's nice. Basically, you're ruling out a lot of things, which is important. Um, so the other thing I was going to ask you was about the um, the heart rate variability technology, which seems to be getting some attention now as a great tracker. And what what opinions you have on that? Well, I, I, I've been using, you know, way, way back, we had to send people to a cardiologist to, to measure heart rate variability. And of course, there are a lot of um, uh, apps and things today uh, that can do that. Um, so I think it's a very important thing. The, 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 there's two important components. One is having a, an app like the Ithalete, I-T-H-L-E-T-E, right. 
um, which which is set up in a very efficient way to measure the heart rate variability accurately. So that's you know getting an accurate measure is one thing, and then doing it properly is another. Uh, you don't want to rush it. You want to do it f- at the same time every morning. You want to do it first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, it it almost doesn't matter, you know, if you're going to do it lying in bed or if you're going to sit up or whatever. Just be consistent with it mm-hmm. and do it at least for a minute. It's better to do it for more than a minute, but if you can be accurate with your um, you know, you know, be be reproducible in your technique. Uh, get a full minute of it, and then um, it, it's a, it's one of those tests that you combine with everything else. Your MAF test, how you feel that day, your morning heart rate, um, and so uh, I think by itself the the HRV is a is a very nice number to have. But when you start combining it with other things. It's a, it's a lot more powerful. And I recommend everybody do that. Um, so you like to see low resting heart rate, high HRV indicating mm-hmm. um, complete, you know, indicating re- recovery. Right. You know, re- recovery is, is often the missing link in someone's program because they do, if you do everything right in training and you're eating, just the way you need to eat, and if you're controlling your stress, but you're not recovering, then nothing's going to work right, or, or nothing's going to work right long term. Um, and a big part of recovery is getting a good night's sleep, and that means seven to nine hours, seven or eight hours, um, sometimes nine hours if if a lot of hours are going into training, and it means uh, seven to nine hours of uninterrupted sleep. And I'm not talking about you know, waking up to have sex. I'm talking about uh, if you wake up at 2 a.m. and you can't get your mind off of work and you get up and you walk around and, you know, that that's an indication of an elevation of the stress hormone cortisol. And when you wake and up in the middle of the night. Problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, but, but what that does is it, is it disturbs your recovery. Um, and if you disturb your recovery, you don't recover as well. And so that, that's a, a problem. And in, in people who have these periods of stress where they're not sleeping as well, they're not recovering as well, um, the morning heart rate will increase a little bit and you'll see the heart rate variability diminish. Um, but again, combine those numbers with common sense, you know, am I waking up at at 2 a.m. or if, if you have to raid the refrigerator in the middle of the night, obviously something is wrong because you should have enough liver glycogen to get you through the night. And if you don't, um, there's a problem. And it's often because you're eating too many refined carbohydrates. But, um, you know, look at the big picture. Very, very important. Uh, what about napping during the day? Where do you fit that in? I, I, you know, or my feeling is to? that, yeah, I don't think you should need to. Um, uh, there may be some exceptions. If you're if you're training twenty five hours a week, um, first of all, I would ask you why are you training twenty five hours a week. Uh, some people can do that. If you have a full time job, uh, twenty five hours a week, I don't think so. Um, you get 
you, you can get a lot more out of your performance if you cut your training down to 18 hours, um, for example. But uh, if you're training a lot of hours, uh, if you're in the middle of a race season and there's a series of races and you're doing a lot of racing, um, maybe there's there's a need for a short nap. And I don't like it to exceed an hour. Uh, quite often, half an hour is enough. But uh, I think for the most part, people who need to nap during the day uh, do so because they're not getting enough sleep, enough quality sleep during the night. Um, so even if you don't, even if you don't wake up and raid the fridge or have those weird sensations, um, if your duration is not long enough because of perhaps artificial light after dark or something getting in the way of the natural melatonin release. Yeah. Um, people, you know, it's, it's interesting what happens is you, you start training and then, uh, you start waking up at, uh, 5am where normally you sleep till seven, you wake up at 5am because you've got to go to swim practice, um, or you've got to get your morning run in, um, uh, that, you know, that doesn't make sense. Um, what I, what I, what I look at is the, the training and the recovery, you know, tra- training is all about, I, I should say, I look at the, the, the workout and the recovery and that's what training is about. And if your workout and recovery are not balanced, if you have too, if you're working out too much or if you're recovering too little meaning you're sleeping too little then you have an imbalance in that training schedule and that's what overtraining is yeah you you made that wild proclamation on another podcast that in relating to your um, book about the 159 marathon you said that might come about by someone doing less mileage and even less speed work and just uh departing from that prevailing approach of extreme overtraining and and super high mileage especially at the elite marathon levels do you, do you really um do you really think that's where we're headed in the future if we're going to keep lowering these times we have to reflect on that obsession with high mileage i think so i think the high mileage trend is just that it's a trend and and there'll be a time when people realize that uh this is not working for me and when enough of those elite marathoners say this is not working for me this you know 100 120 150 mile weeks um as more and more of them do less and less and perform better uh the word will get out and people will say oh i you know maybe 100 miles a week is not the the magic number and i you know i often cut total workload total volume training volume down in in uh in professional athletes, but, you know, age groupers as well, sometimes by, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50%. And it, it, you know, it, it was, it was, it it got to be funny because I would know that they were going to go out and start performing well all of a sudden. And that's what would happen in most cases. So, um, you know, there's good scientific validity with that, but it's a, it's a clinical observation, that I made years ago. And I think more and more athletes are coming to that realization as well. Well, it seems like we're still in this locked in this debate of, do you do a lot of volume or 
do you do a lot of intensity and no one no one's embracing that that door number three where hey you you back up on both of them yeah and also you know they never define intensity what is it that that you're you know how do you define intensity is it is it you know is there a heart rate number for example that uh, we as as individuals can relate to, and the same with volume. You know, volume is a more clear cut uh, factor. You you train x x number of hours a week. Um, that's your volume, but the volume is going to be um, dependent on the on the intensity too. Because if you're not doing a lot of intensity training miles, your your volume can be higher without as much stress but certainly you know too much too much volume and or too much intensity is another way that that overtraining is defined so i guess the the elite athlete now and it seems like some of these guys are doing a pretty good job uh like the 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 guys up in oregon with salazar mary kane and galen rupp are using all the high-tech uh, rehabilitative uh, tools to their advantage, and I guess trying to perform as much work as they can without getting overstressed and injured, but pushing that red line um, right up to the right up to the very edge, in order to try to break a record time. So I wonder if there's a is there a way around that where they have a little bit more capacity and they're not right at the very edge all the time, but can still produce record times? Well, it, it depends on how you define the edge. Um, I think people need to get into overreaching mm, on the healthy right. side of overreaching in order to develop. But if you go into the unhealthy side of overreaching, then you're in trouble. The problem is that a lot of people are measuring a variety of things, and they're often not measuring the right thing. Um, they're not given enough information to say, oops, things are going wrong now. And a lot of times it's not one measurement. It's a combination of measurements, and, and that's what clinicians do. They look at the big picture and say, oh, all these measurements don't look so bad individually, but when you put them all together and when you tell me that you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're starting to get a lot more hungry – and you're craving caffeine, and you're a little depressed, well, now we're way over that line where we don't want to be um, based on that. And a good clinician will be able to pick out those signs and symptoms a lot earlier. Uh, and that's, not, that's just not being done. Um, and if, if these runners you know, up in Oregon are, 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 are putting it together properly, then we should be seeing the performances, the great performances that, that follow. And I'm, you know, I, I hope we do, but, um, I'm, I'm questioning that. So what's the difference between overreaching and the state of overtraining, the undesirable state of overtraining? The overreaching is that, you know, sort of a hypothetical point where you're, you're training, and getting maximum benefits from your training and your recovering. And, and so you're not working yourself into a debt and you're doing it at, at that point where if you go a little bit more, you're now over that line where you're not getting maximum response from your training and you're going into debt. 
So you go over that line and in a, in a, in a few weeks, in a couple of months, in a few months, you start seeing um, abnormal signs and symptoms. Like I said, fatigue, uh, depression, uh, in hormone imbalance in both men and women. Um, and of course, what follows is performance, um, you know, performance decreases, performance um, uh, impairment. Uh, what's interesting uh, is that in the earliest stages of overtraining, when you've gone just past that healthy overreaching into the first stage of overtraining, what you do is you rev up your your sympathetic nervous system. Your autonomics get out of balance. You have too much sympathetic activity. You're revved up. Your adrenals are on fire. And you kind of feel good. And you may go out and run a PR in a, in a big race, or you may have two PRs back-to-back. And then you crash and burn. Oh, yeah. That, that is the history of so many athletes, and I, I'm not going to name them, but you know, we all know that people burst on the scene, have a great race. Maybe they've, um, maybe they've focused on a, a, an Olympic marathon or a world championship or whatever. Um, they, they, they get a PR. They have a you know, world record, national record, and then they get injured. Then they get burned out, or then they, or then you don't hear from them again. You don't see them in a race for a year and a half or two. Um, this is there's an epidemic of that. That's called overtraining. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I'll name names right here because this happened to me on a few really distinct occasions where your sympathetic activity is so revved up that you wake up every day and you feel fine and you feel pumped up, and you're ready to attack again and again. And I had periods of training where I felt like I was superhuman, and I was going to go out there on the race course and beat everybody. And I had no warning or no indication that I was um, you know, heading into a deep, dark hole. And it happens very suddenly, and all of a sudden you wake up one day, yep. and for the next six weeks you got nothing because you finally – uh, you know, depleted your, your stress hormone production and we're out, but your, your body tries so hard to cope. And so I think what this means is that we have to bring in that other component to training. And that's the intuitive component that you speak about so much. So instead of a mechanical robotic approach where this schedule is going to deliver the best results, the one I found in the magazine, you have to reason with yourself and say, gee, I've been going really strong for eight weeks straight without a break, and maybe it's time to just, you know, ratchet down a little bit in the anticipation of perhaps a potential crash in the future or just having some sense that, hey, you are kind of revved up and, and amped up too much right now, and um, that's not necessarily a good thing, even though you're turning in good times and beating all your training partners up the hill. Right. Right. And, and I think part of it is the inability to gather the, the data, if you're collecting it, and to interpret it properly and to look at the human being that is this athlete who has signs and symptoms, uh, who has plenty of indications that you can take and 
uh, look at holistically and say, we're going the wrong way. Let's let's cut back a little bit. Let's cut back on volume or let's cut back on intensity or let's take three days off. I would often give an athlete three days off if they would come in. They'd come in and say, well, I, you know, I, I was really feeling good. And two weeks ago, I just felt pretty bad. I had a bad race. I said, OK, let's just stop three days of nothing and then start um, uh, training aerobically and build yourself back up over the next three to four weeks and let's uh, reevaluate along the way. That that's not being done. You're right. There's there's a um, a, a magic training schedule in a magazine, and and people follow it. Or there's a, a you know a, a coach or um, some some popular training center uh, where they have an approach. Here's our approach. This is what we do. Everybody does this. Um, uh, you know, there's a better way to do it. The bottom line is if if your performance is diminishing, if you're injured, whether it's a physical, chemical, or mental injury, whatever it was that you were doing was not right for you. How, how easy can it be to understand that? And what happens too often is athletes are put through um, this horrendous uh, training routine where they're just beat up, they feel terrible, and the the coaches or whoever say, you know, wow, your your VO two max is better. Well, well <laughs> so what? You know, um, you know, and we need to we need to treat athletes in a kinder, gentler way because um, we're trashing too many of them, and that's that's uh, an unfortunate situation. Well, speaking of that and the 159 marathon, I personally think, I'll, I'll see what your take on us, but I think the gateway to these continued breakthroughs in, in the highest standard is going to come from more extreme rest periods. So you're going to have these athletes. For sure, you know. To, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a, a an excellent point because the resting is just as important as the training and everybody's focused on the training and there's not enough people from, from coaches and, and magazine articles to the athletes themselves. There's not enough focus on the recovery. And like I said, sleeping is a big part of that. Um, the more we recover, the stronger we get. It's really as, as, as simple as that. And, you know, as, as an aside, it's, it's interesting that every once in a while, and I started hearing more of this when the 159 book came out, um, there are some people out there, not many, and, and they're, well, not many, um, who believe that humans have reached our, our limitations. We, we, we really can't improve much more than we have in sports, period across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where this idea comes from. Sure. I guess we're taking a snapshot of human beings and the set, you know, the same thing happened in the early fifties when there was this discussion about breaking the four minute mile. What a, what a concept, How, you know, can this be done? And there were, there were scientific people that were saying, well, the human body is not capable of running under four minutes a mile. We're physiologically not built for that. 
And, um, you know, so somehow people think that we've reached our limits as human beings and we're not going to, we're not going to get any faster in the marathon, for example. Um, I, that's just insane. I, you know, I sometimes don't even know how to respond to that idea. Well, it's interesting to think that there's a whole nother dimension out there. And I, I would tend to agree because, um, you know, the lifestyles that even the top athletes lead, even in the, especially in the major sports where, you know, these basketball, baseball, football players are getting shot up with painkillers and eating, you know, really terrible diets and, and traveling in the middle of the night on airplanes and messing up their circadian rhythms as a routine in the NBA, for example. Um, you know, sure. all that stuff will get, get rethought about. But I think in, for endurance athletes, especially, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to see the elites going down into maybe even they'll be in a, a medically induced coma for 48 hours every, every time they do a five day training block or something where they just go into a salt tank and float <laughs> there and come out. And that's where you're going to get those marginal performance benefits that'll take, you know, a couple more minutes off the world record time in this event or that event. Sure. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of interesting techniques, and I've used a lot of them in my whole career, um, that can help a, a lot of the top marathoners in the case of, of that world, um, but all sports. Uh, hyperbaric chambers, which I, I used from the even before they were being developed, uh, before they were being sold, um, uh, the benefits you can get from these things. And, you know, so if we can take you know, I could think of a bunch of these approaches that over the years have proved to be successful and I can I can push away a bunch more that I thought, no, they they seemed good but they didn't pan out in, in the long term. And apply them to some athletes who have a lot of great tools, like the Kenyans, um apply them and and the results will 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 follow. You know, the Kenyans um, have a terrible diet. Mm. Their diet is terrible. There, mm. There's no, you know, from a scientific standpoint, the, the, their diets have been evaluated. And the, um, uh, the fact that they're terrible is well known. But when they go out into the world, when they become good at racing and they start traveling internationally, their diet actually gets worse. <laughs> because they're exposed to a lot more junk food. They don't have a great education right. on healthy uh, eating. Right. And so, you know, and then there's the circadian stress, and there's also the vitamin D stress. They're living in Kenya. They grew up in Kenya. Um, and their vitamin D status, because they're outside all the time, is um, is most likely very good. Now they start traveling and they come up to the northern areas, especially if they come to North America and Europe, um, Japan, um, to race and, and live in many cases. And with the dark skin, they're not going to get much, if any, vitamin D at these northern latitudes. Um, and so that becomes another problem. And there, there's problem after problem. So they're, they're sort of um, making progress. And the whole shoe thing is, is part of it. So when they're younger, you know, they pop into a race, they, they happen to do well, and they win a pair of shoes. And it's the first time they wear shoes. Well, that becomes 
a problem because you put on a pair of shoes, even the perfect fit shoe um, is going to slow you down. It's going to reduce your running economy. There's no question about that. Um, I think we, we could have had a sub two hour marathon if some of these Kenyans um, like Dennis, you know, Dennis, who has the world's record now, um, what if, and we can estimate the, the time difference uh, with and without shoes. But what yeah. if he said, I'm not going to take, you know, this $50,000 from a shoe company. I'm going to race barefoot because that's what got me here. Um, I, I think we could be under two hours at this point. Wow. So obviously the average runner with, with no experience barefooting, we've heard this debate that everything needs to be done gradually and, and gradually acclimating, but you're, you're a big proponent of, of getting more barefoot time and letting that foot do its, its magical work that it's designed to without being encased in a shoe. Sure, sure. And, you know, that is the problem is that many people have not grown up barefoot. Um, I, I spent a lot of time barefoot in my youth, and I think it, it, it's one of the reasons my injury rate has been almost zero through my through my active career. But some, you know, the Kenyans, the Ethiopians, um, a, a lot of a lot of the great runners grew up barefoot, and they didn't have shoes until later on. So for them to to race barefoot is 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 easy. Phil, I appreciate you spending time covering all these assorted, interesting topics, and we'll get you on the Primal Endurance podcast again, maybe pile up some questions from listeners. But for now, I encourage you guys to go check out philmaffetone.com. That's M-A-F-F-E-T-O-N-E. You got your music up there, right, as well as all your great articles and books, right, Phil? I do, and the music will be will be moving over to a separate site because it's become too busy. <laughs> um, but right now, the music is there, and um, it m- much of it, most of it, is actually free. You can download it. Well, best of luck with all those fun and creative activities, and thanks for joining us on the Primal Endurance Podcast with Dr. Phil Maffetone. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. So, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she so she loves those sort of we love them as well. We have uh we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um the avocado oil we use all the time. And and so, you know, that's completely genuine and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. (laughs) It's my pleasure.